Please do join me once again in taking out your Bibles and turning to Luke chapter 6. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are gathered here to hear you speak to us through your word, by your spirit. So Father, feed us that we could grow, that we could change, uh, that we could mature and become more and more like our elder brother, Jesus. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Beginning last week and for the next few weeks, we're unpacking and exploring uh, what's called the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, Here, Jesus is training his apostles and he's teaching them and all of his disciples about the identity and ethics of those people who are coming into the kingdom of God. It has to do with the new life and the new way of life that Jesus is bringing. Now, last week, we looked at verses 17 through 26, and we saw there uh, in red light, green light, uh, four blessings and four woes, Uh, not do's and don'ts. uh, It's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's the indicative. It's statements. It's not imperatives. It's not commands. Um, I think that provides a helpful way for all of us to view our life because it helps us to grow in the midst of hardship here in a sinful and fallen world where things are against us, things don't go right, whether we're poor or hungry, weeping, uh, persecuted. You see, in thinking about red lights and and green lights, what the world may view as green lights, you know, be, be full, now, um, laugh now, um, uh, have everything you want now, be popular now. What the world thinks is green lights um, probably many times are, are red lights um, from God's perspective. Uh, see, that the kingdom of God that Jesus is speaking about um, helps us view them, those woes, as warnings to stop, to check our engine to see who we're living for, what we're living for. And you see, it, it, it's, a, it's a woe. These are woes because, you know, it really is harder to live by faith and not by sight. It is easy to walk by sight. It's easier to live by sight than faith. It's certainly easy to rely on self, and I appreciate the prayer request where someone was saying, I don't want to rely on myself. I don't want to trust in myself. It's important because we need assurance, not just intellectual assurance, but deep personal assurance. When we are poor, hungry, sorrowful, persecuted because of the name of Jesus. Indeed, that's Luke's purpose in writing, is it not? To give certainty to his reader then and now as to the person and work of Jesus. Let's uh, read our passage beginning in verse 27. But I, that's Jesus speaking, but I say to you who hear, 
Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lead to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Here we are in the month of February, almost the middle of February. Valentine's Day is what? Tuesday. February 14th is really at the center of the month. It's at the middle of the month. And and of course, we all know that Valentine's Day is a day traditionally set aside to celebrate love. It began as a Christian feast day. There were one or two martyrs in the early church named Valentine. But by the late 19th and early 20th century, it moved away from those origins and it was more to the giving and receiving of gifts. Obviously, we know cards, flowers, chocolates. Uh, It moved toward that day of thoughts of love between lovers and among friends that all for the last few weeks has been pointing forward to February 14th. And as John Paul Young sang in 1978, love is in the air everywhere I look around. Yet, we just heard something that seems really out of place on Valentine's Day. We heard about love, but it just doesn't sound like it fits the kind of love that's being expressed portrayed on Valentine's Day. If we didn't need to hear it once, we heard it twice. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Did you notice also there was a but before each one? But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And then down at verse 35, but love your enemies. Love your enemies? Are you kidding me? Enemies are not to be loved, but hated, right? Yes, I know about love. I mean, love God, love neighbor. But here, we've run up against the command that I believe is harder to obey than the standard of love that God demands when we view some of our neighbors to be our enemies. You know, loving our family and loving friends is hard enough, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. 
are our families bastions of love? Are even our friend groups all about love? It's hard to love the people we like. It's hard to love the people we live with. It's hard to love the people that we gravitate toward. But enemies, there's no way. It it, it can't be done. What kind of love is this? Pretty much right next to impossible, it would seem. Our text is all about love. And so we're going to work our way through this part of the Sermon on the Plain by asking three, three questions. Who are we to love? How are we to love? And why are we to love? The who, the how, and the why. Let's get started. Who are we to love? In a word, our enemies. People whose actions and attitudes are against you. Now, before we go on, there is a good form of being against one another. You know, when one of us is about to jump into sin, I hope and pray that we are against you at that moment. When I am about to do something stupid and foolish with a lot of consequences, I hope some of you will get in my face and stand against me. But in general, an enemy or those people whose actions and attitudes are going against you all the time, fundamentally. It's the posture, it's the position. And if you look at our text, it's people who hate you. It's people who curse you. It's people who abuse you. I don't know anyone who enjoys being hated, cursed, and abused. Our text says enemies hate you, curse you, abuse you. There are people who strike you on the cheek. Now, in that day and age, that was a a sign of an insult. You're being backhanded. So when Jesus calls you to turn the other cheek, it's not just taking another blow. It's not just, oh yeah, you put a bruise on this side of my face, you can put a bruise on that, the other side of my face. No, it's not so literal as that. It is, you've insulted me, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to get revenge. I'm not going to have a, I'm going to let you insult me again. People who take things away from you, I'm not going to work really hard to get them back. But, but, but who are our enemies? I mean, who, who are they? Let's identify them. Well, if you see the context from, from last week and the blessings and woes, right? An enemy could be seen as that person who excludes you and reviles you and spurns your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Someone who's persecuting you because you are identifying with Jesus. And despite God's instructions in the Old Testament as to being kind to the sojourner, the alien. Over time, the us versus them framework really got got embedded in Jewish life and culture. Gentiles were dogs. 
They were the enemy. I mean, think about all the, the woman at the well, the good Samaritan, all the things Jesus will later speak about. Now, contextually, of course, here, it's those that are persecuting you. Those are the people you're called to love. Well, well let's think about us. At, at times, our enemies are our friends, or at least they're acting like enemies, right? Most all of you have been in friendships that have gotten into a knock-down, dra knock drag-out fight, right? Sometimes with just words, sometimes with blows, right? Friends acting like enemies. Friends that used to get together are isolating themselves, suspicious of one another, thinking the worst and not the best of one another. They're acting like enemies. And I've been reminded in recent weeks of Ephesians 6, 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We may view our neighbors, our fellow church members, our friends, our family members, our parents, our siblings, our children as enemies. And to be sure, they may be at times acting like enemies, but they are not. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the, script, the spiritual principalities, right? But at times... Our enemy is ourself. We act like an enemy to ourself. I think all of us at time or two might have said something along the lines, I hate myself. I'm no good. I am worthless. Sometimes we've met the enemy, and it's us. I'm reading a book with the title, Our Own Worst Enemy. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy. And what are we called to do? To love our enemies. Now, there is a sinful kind of self-love, but there is a right kind, for lack of a better word, of self-love. Um, years ago... A year or so ago, a friend introduced me to a song, and my wife reminded me of it the other day. It's got an interesting title, Be Kind to Yourself. Be kind to yourself, and it's got this line in the middle. It says, how does it end when the war that you're in is just you against you against you? Gotta learn to love, learn to love, learn to love your enemies too. Who are we to love? Our enemies. Our enemies may or may not be easily recognizable, but our response is to be the same, right? Love. So before we go any further, how are you doing at obeying this unbelievably hard command from the Lord Jesus. Love 
your enemies. What are we called to do? Love our enemies. Well, how on earth do we do that? Well, our text kind of walks us through it, doesn't it? By doing good and not hating our enemies. We're to do good to our enemies by by blessing our enemies, not cursing our enemies. We we are to bless our enemies. Now, by praying for and not abusing our enemies. We're to pray for our enemies. I think when you hear all these words come run after the other after the other, it's really just, it's giving depth and definition to love, right? Right? How do you love somebody? You do good to them. You bless them. You pray for them, right? That's how you love them. That's how you put, um, put the rubber meets the road, right, in love. It's more than a feeling, as a band out of Boston would say, right? Love is a verb, some people say, right? Well, here's a bunch of verbs, right? Do good, bless, pray for. It's interesting that pray for is, is paired up with abusing, right? Now, of course, this is not going to prevent actual, physical, significant verbal abuse from being dealt with appropriately, right? It's not what Jesus is talking about. How do we love our enemies? By offering and not withholding. We are to give and not withhold and but there's a caution and that's a caveat because you know you're walking down the street on the back alley and 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 a mugger jumps out absolutely defend yourself right absolutely stand if you can and defend yourself it's not what it's it's talking about again Offer the other cheek. It it has to do with being insulted and that you would gladly endure insults as the apostles did for the sake of Christ. Take your cloak and your tunic. Here it's a bit more figurative than literal because uh, nakedness in this day is not viewed as positive as it's not viewed in public as positive now either. It's giving this picture of When they've taken this, even give them more. And to help us with how to love, look at this series of diagnostic questions in verses 32 through 34. These diagnostic questions are kind of like a good um, cross-examining attorney or a good physician taking a history. They expose our hearts and they're painful. The first one, if you love those who love you, I mean, anybody can do that, right? If you do good to those who do good to you, anybody can do that. If you, if you um, lend to people expecting to get paid back, anybody can do that. I mean, this is, this is ordinary, natural decency, right? Do good to those who do good to you. Love those who love you. Lend to those who will pay you back. You know, it's one good turn deserves deserves another. It's you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. It's quid pro quo, this for that. My friends, this is not 
What Jesus is talking about, it is not ordinary, it is not natural, it is extraordinary, it is supernatural. Again, look at, um, at verse 35, but love your enemies. It's the second time, it's assuming that your default is to hate your enemy. But love. Alfred Plummer, in a 1910 commentary on this verse in Matthew, says this. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. To love as God loves is moral perfection. My friends, this is life in the Christian counterculture. You want to be countercultural? You want to stick it to the man? You want to beat the system? This is life in the Christian counterculture. But love your enemies. Do good. Bless. Pray for. Give. Don't expect to be paid back. Love does not look like sentiment. Maybe Valentine's Day love looks like sentiment. But this kind of love looks like service. Practical, humble, sacrificial service. Now we've identified who we are to love, our enemies, and we've begun. Certainly we have not finished We've only just begun to think about how we can love, but let's consider now the motivation for responding with love. Let's examine the why. And I think it's important that we are all children here, no matter what age we are. You know, kids always want to know why they have to do something, right? You're told to do something by mom and dad. What do you say? You either say no, which is the bad first answer, And then the second answer coming in quickly is why. And if mom and dad have had good nights of sleep, they'll be happy to explain the why. God is kind to us children, is he not? He gives us the why. I want to take our eyes to verse 31, first of all, because of the golden rule. I mean, there is an appropriate kind of self-interest um, years ago, um, I was talking to somebody, I think it was in Pennsylvania, and we were talking about like what's in the Bible and what's not in the Bible. And, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Who said it? Where is it in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. It's Benjamin Franklin. And then my friend said, the golden rule. It's in the Bible, right? And I'm like, no, it's not, because that's just societal niceness, right? Wrong answer. It's in Matthew, it's in Luke, and there were generally in this day and age rules like this, but they were generally negative. Philosophers, other religions, you know, don't treat people like you don't want to be treated. Don't do this to them because you don't want that to be done to you. But the golden rule here, as it became known as, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them, that was something new and unique. It's positive. 
It's the positive do, it's not the negative don't do. But there's more going on here in terms of motivation than, than just a good rep, rep, reciprocity. There you go, reciprocity. It can be good, like, right? Treat other people like you want to be treated. I mean, if we all lived by that, things would be a bit smoother. But there's more motivation. Look down at verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Aha, reward. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Eh, doesn't work, right? Because you do this and you're gonna get rewarded, right? Works. Think of the reward, though, as the fulfillment of the promise. Not becoming sons, but the pattern of character of being sons. You see, there's not only a promise there with this reward. There's proof. There's proof here of who God is. So why are we to love? Well, you've got the golden rule. You've got because there's a reward. But it's because of who God is. He is kind. To whom does God show kindness? He shows kindness to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, some of us may be thinking common grace, rain falls on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. But he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. It's not just people out there. It's people in the mirror. You see, until someone comes to faith in Jesus, until they are that new creation, they are ungrateful. They are evil. Paul writes to Titus and he talks about the, the, the citizens of Crete, they are ungrateful. Paul writes to the church in Rome about unbelievers. They don't give thanks to God. And as we heard from Romans 5, my friends, that's us. Why are we to love? Because God is kind. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He's kind to his enemies, if I can put it so bluntly. Romans 5, while we were still sinners, if while we were enemies. You see, Jesus is drawing our attention not just to thinking about, oh yeah, those, those ungrateful and evil people out there. He is drawing our attention to the ungrateful and evil person that we once were and probably have vestiges still of now. And not only is God kind, but he's merciful. Look at how this section ends. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Who, who does God show mercy to? His enemies, right? We've all seen the movies. We've all read the stories. The subdued enemy is at the point of the sword and 
and, and they're begging for mercy. And whoever is holding the sword either puts the sword back or doesn't. Notice how love and mercy, in this case, are the same. Why are we to love? The Apostle John, who was in this audience, summed it up later in one of his letters, his first letter. We love because he first loved us. We love God because he first loved us. We love our friends because God first loved us. We love our enemies because God first loved us. And to the degree that we are our own enemy, we rightfully, appropriately, Christ-likeness, we, we love ourselves. You've heard the quote before from D.A. Carson in Love in Hard Places. The church is made up of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. These pews are filled in part, and maybe one day in full, with a bunch of natural enemies, but who love one another for Jesus' sake. You know, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Earthly kingdoms, political, business, you punch me, I'm going to punch back harder. You do this to me, I'm going to do that to you. I mean, those kind of businesses and political things, they may be effective, but those are miserable. God's kingdom is not of this world. It's in this world. It's not of this world. We love our enemies, not by punching them in the face, not by insulting them, not by degrading them, not by shaming them. We love our enemies by doing good to them, by blessing them, praying for them, lending to them, because we we're loved by God when we were enemies of God. God didn't wait for us to no longer be enemies before he took action on our behalf for our good. This is a really hard command. Impossible? Are we off the hook? Augustine, in his autobiographical Confessions writes this, familiar words to some. O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. He's expressing this tension between God's demand and our desire and ability. At the center of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the revelation of how this tension is relieved. You see, the love that God demands from us, God provides for us. Well, how could that be true? Because at the heart of the gospel, you see, my friends, at the heart of the Christian faith is a man dying for his enemies. A man who loves his enemies 
to death. My friends, rest in the knowledge of God's affection, God's love for you, and work from the knowledge of God's affection, of his love for you. There is nothing more secure than the love of God. John Owen, in one of his works, I believe it was Communion with Christ, says, I'm paraphrasing, the greatest disservice you can do to God, the greatest disfavor and dishonor that you can do is to not believe that he loves you. Because when you believe that he loves you and rest in that and work from that, you and I may be able to move in the direction, at least, of loving our enemies. What kind of love is this? In a word, amazing. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God of mercy and compassion has lavished on you and me an everlasting kindness and a boundless love. What kind of manner the Father has to those of us, his children. Amazing love. How can it be? With God, there is indeed an everlasting kindness. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that Jesus did not say what people were used to hearing wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. So Father, as this passage started out, but I say to you who hear, oh God, be pleased to give everyone in and around grace and peace, indeed around your worldwide church, ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is an everlasting kindness.